Welcome to a University of Bath IPR policy podcast. Well, thank you very much indeed, Gillies, for that warm introduction. It's great to be here at Bath. I have been uh, to this university a bit over the years and, of course, uh, used to debate a lot with Steve Webb, one of your very uh, distinguished uh, professors as he was, and it's great to see Nick here now. Uh, and thank you for what you said. I love being the Minister for Universities and Science. Of course, one of the questions I used to get all the time was, what do you, as the author of this book about fairness between the generations, think of the policies of the Minister for Universities? And that is a question we might, we might turn to in the Q&A. Uh, but when this book came out in 2010, I would, I would claim, and I have not yet been disproven, it was the first book looking at post-war Britain from the perspective of different generations. And we had become very sensitive to differences in people's uh, life chances because of ethnicity or gender or social class. But there hadn't been one looking at how different cohorts are doing. Uh, and in fact, one of my frustrations writing the book 2007, 8, 9 is that there was not a massive amount of data. Quite a lot of social statistics were hard to break down into different cohorts and compare them. I think because of the increasing interest in this subject, uh, and my book has been followed by lots of other analysis, we have got a bit more data. So one of them, well, as I'm in a university and a lot of you are academics, you want data, I've got data. <laughs> and I'm going to take you through a lot of slides that I think bring out the arguments in the book using data, a lot of which uh, was either not available or I wasn't aware of when I wrote the book. So let's start with the basics uh, and what the book is not about and what I don't believe is that we face some terrible demographic crisis and uh, what this chart shows is, now let me just make sure I know how the pointer works, is this the, is this, oh it's brilliant, um, so you can see there was a, we've gone through a period relatively flat for uh, population, but it's now surging. We're on our way. We, we are a forecast vary, but we're on our way to become Europe's biggest country. And interestingly, on some forecasts, we will become Europe's biggest economy. So we don't, we don't have some kind of Japanese-type demographic issue. And this is to define terms. Now, there's no, um, there's no authority way of doing it, but this is how I try to do it in the book. Now, this is not... The, 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 the sophisticated demographers are interested in things like sort of fer fertility rates and everything. I'm looking at this simply from the crude figure of the number of babies born each year. Because for quite a lot of the economy, you know, pressures on number of people going to university, pressures on schools, just the number per year matters. And you can see how I've defined the baby boom. This period with twin peaks in 1947 and 1964 when quite extraordinarily we had more than a million babies born. And between it, the number of babies born never fell below 800,000. Whereas after that, we've had, oh, we've had virtually no periods when we've had more than 800,000 babies born. So that's my, my, oops, sorry, that's my definition of the, uh, of the, of the boomers. And... Uh, for though, of course, we're going to have, I'm sure, with this kind of audience, lots of very sophisticated economic and social analysis. Uh, it's just worth mentioning in passing that those two peaks did occur after very cold winters as well. <laughs> um, uh, so there we've got... Uh, and so that's 
and, and those are, that's my attempt to define the baby boom post-war, so it's rather neat. It's, it's people born between 1945 and 1965 is how that works out. Uh, and again, to, re to repeat the point, this shows kind of those classic things that you will be aware of, of the shape of, a, of the population. Britain has got some uh, shifts in the balance of populations, of course, notably because of the baby boomers. But compared with the kind of ageing population of Japan, this is not a terrible crisis. And here, the classic stuff, the ratios of uh, people of, uh, of age 25 to 64 to older people, um, it is rising, but it was rising pretty fast in the post-war period. And then that's the baby boom. That's when you have a surge in the number of people of working age. Those are particularly benign circumstances. That's when the Thatcher government was able to run budget surpluses and uh, restrain the growth of public spending. It had relatively few kids coming on behind, relatively not much increase in the number of pensioners, surge in the working age population. That's when if you want to have structural change in your economy because you've got lots of new young workers entering their workforce, that's when you do it and it did happen in Britain. Uh, but I'm not, again, I'm not saying here we have some appalling demographic crisis. Now, what, I'd really like, what I'm going to do now is focus on different uh, aspects of British of British society. I'm going to look at the welfare state, the labour market, and assets. And you just follow the argument through and see if it's pretty clear that the baby boom, the, how the baby boom has worked out as being advantageous. And incidentally, contrary to the conventional wisdom, the conventional wisdom was that being a big cohort was bad news. You'd go through life travelling economy class, not club class. You'd have lots of competitors in the jobs market. Uh, and I think a very interesting question, a layman's question, is if you had a choice, would you like to be born in a big cohort or a small cohort? And the view tended to be, if I had a choice, I'd think I'd like to be born in a small, small cohort, please. The argument in the book, and it's a pretty crude argument, I know, but the argument in the book is that, look, it may turn out that being a big cohort works to your advantage. Uh, it means you've got a lot of uh, electoral power. It means you've got a lot of uh, consumer power. That's why the Rolling Stones are still on tour. There's a very big baby boomer market that's still there. So in other words, you can shape an economy by a combination of spending power and voting power. So maybe it's turning out so far, at least, that being a big cohort is working out being a good deal, contrary, as I said, to the way the classic model works. Now, there are people here who know far more about social policy than me, but this is a kind of attempt at the, the classic picture of, of how a... A f the functioning of a welfare state in which it collects money from us in our peak years when we're all working and pushes it out to the extremities of the life cycle, tending to spend money a bit on younger people and quite a lot on older people. Uh, and so there is a, a massive exchange between the generations that happens in the welfare state. It's, it's income-smoothing on a large scale, and although at any one point it looks like one group of workers who are paying for young people and older people, you can also think of it, as Paul Samuelson brilliantly put it, it's how we actually smooth our own incomes across the life cycle, because what we do is we are recipients, contributors, and then recipients again. It is, it is actually, it, in theory, 
you might expect that at the end of these transactions, what you've done is you've used people of other generations to smooth your own income, and you end up netting out at equity. Um, now, the thought, a kind of thought experiment as to why, as to how a big generation could benefit is, imagine you are a large cohort in a simple economy with a rule that you balance the budget across the economic cycle. And you say that, and you have a commitment, let's say it's, Let's say there's no economic growth, and you have a commitment of a stable amount of real resource per student in education, stable amount of real resource per person requiring health care per, per pensioner. And you impose, and so you then have a normal economic cycle, you've got a balanced budget rule, and a big cohort comes along. What happens? Well, while that cohort is young, you have higher levels of education spending in total than previously you would have done because you've got more students. You're not spending more per student, but you have more students. Then when they, and so it looks at first, it shows up as a fiscal pressure requiring taxes to rise to pay for the education of this large cohort. This large cohort then enters the workforce. And for the time that they're in the workforce, when there are more of them than there are pensioners uh, uh, ahead of them or young people coming on behind them, you can completely consistent with your balanced budget rule, you can bring down taxes because you've got uh, a big number of workers paying their taxes and smaller numbers of recipients. And at the end, when they're all pensioners again, taxes need to rise so this large cohort of pensioners will be sustained by a smaller group of workers coming on behind so again, for me, as a kind of layman thinking through in a primitive way, this could be the kind of mechanism in my very simplified model in which being a big cohort does work out to your advantage. You get the benefit of a welfare state when you need it, and you get, consistent with your balanced budget rule, the benefit of low taxes when you're all uh, in work. And uh, believe it or not, and this is the kind of work we're now at the Resolution Foundation, we want to update and upgrade, but the great John Hills... Uh, did some work, which does show he had to make some heroic assumptions, but he was trying to work out whether there were cohorts who, on heroic assumptions about fixed social policy and fixed tax rates, would end up net getting, taking in or getting out from the welfare state. And he does indeed show these uh, large effects. The beneficiaries earlier on, the very old beneficiaries, the beneficiaries of the creation of the welfare state, you know, created perhaps, so they started receiving pensions without having had to make large contributions. But then we can see on John's figures, now I admit uh, more than a decade old, these calculations, but it showed the kind of effect that I was speculating about. And it is, if you are on the receiving end, it's not, it may be one of the explanations why younger people are more disengaged from the welfare state. It doesn't look to them like a particularly good deal. It looks to them like something which, from which they are not going to benefit. Whereas the baby boomers, who are great beneficiaries, and that other group who came in early, clearly are beneficiaries of the welfare state. For them, it's proved to be, so far, a much better deal. Um, now, generation accounting is, is still quite um, a, a primitive science, but it, tr again, tries to measure 
how individual cohorts are doing, whether they're individually net contributors or uh, beneficiaries or taking out. And again, these are two separate estimates by different authors um, of how, the, how things are going. And they show, if anything, the, uh, uh, how, if anything, it's got, it's got tougher between the two times, the two estimates over a, over a decade apart. Um, and here is the final one. Someone said of my book, it was supposed to be a warning, not a training manual. Um, and here is what we can see happening to the value of different benefits. These are the, this is the kind of controversy which George Oswald got into recently. This is what worries me, worries us at the Resolution Foundation, where you can see uh, pensioners doing particularly well per head. Now, this is where I have to, have to pause. I'm not against... Pensioners. I don't, I'm not saying there's a group that are um, ill-intentioned. And at the, normally when I do these uh, type of presentations, I get afterwards a letter in very neat copper plate handwriting on Basildon Bond notepaper from someone saying, Dear Mr. Willits, you know, I'm aged 87. I've had a very tough life. What have you got in for me? This is, this is kind of what I've had to put up with in my life, Mr. Willits. It wasn't easy. So first of all, mine is really about uh, boomers and the effect of boomers who are now becoming pensioners and beginning to exercise their political influence as pensioners, these trends start diverging when large numbers of boomers become of pension age. Uh, it's not about older people, and it's, of course it's about averages. There's adversity and uh, advantage in every age group. But you can see what's happening. Now, uh, the, the other qualification here, of course, is I'm talking about value of benefits per head, and a good thing we're raising the pension age, so the total pension budget is being offset by that quite rapid increase in the pension age. But nevertheless, you can, that is a significant uh, divergence in the past decade or more between, um, between pensioners and benefits for other people. So that's my kind of picture of the welfare state and we, in, there's a, we can be a lot more sophisticated research done and I'm happy to answer your questions about it but I think that there is a, we're beginning to see a picture emerging where some generations may do better out of the welfare state than other generations. It ceases to be it ceases to deliver generational equity. So that's my kind of first body of evidence. Now uh, the second body of evidence is what's happening in the labour market. Uh, now, and this is a kind of good change in a way, uh, though it helps to, it's driving some of the factors. We've got to recognize, you know, the age of entry into the labor market being delayed and more older workers, uh, more older people in work, which is uh, basically a good thing. I mean, I would observe, the trouble is that when you become, when you become interested in cohorts, you kind of, you, you see the effects everywhere. I was in biz uh, when, in 2012, with very little controversy, we removed the last residual element of retirement age. There was not a, we'd long since, in the 1980s, removed a retirement condition for the receipt of a pension. But retirement age did still carry on in labor market legislation, where essentially it took the form that an employer could uh, ask you to leave when you were aged 65 without offering any explanation. And my party was having this lively public debate about whether or not we should further deregulate the labor market. And with almost no controversy, actually significantly extended labor market protections 
to by suddenly making saying in 2012, if you're aged over 65, you can't be sacked by a employer just on the grounds you've reached retirement age, he has to show you're no longer capable of doing the job, which is a very significant extension of employment protection rights, essentially, to all pensioners. Happened the year that with the first year when you had large numbers, the 1947 peak baby boomers, a million baby boomers, the men in particular, reaching the age of 65. And with no fuss at all, that was the very year when this long-standing feature of British labour law was removed, even though it was in some ways, you could argue, contrary to the wider rhetoric of my party at the time. So anyway, we've got a big... Uh, the, the surge in employment, the biggest single surge in employment is amongst uh, pensioners working. Um, and now this is a... Uh, this is a, this is a classic resolution foundation slide, and I am excellent researcher, Laura Gardner. And what's this is, what's this is telling you is that the pay squeeze in the recession was toughest for younger workers, and they are the ones who have still got further to travel. This was in 2014, there's been a bit more progress since. We've got further to travel uh, from their peak earnings of those age groups before the crash. So the younger you were, the more sensitive you were to the crash and the further you've got travel to recover. Um, one thing that's, uh, that's, going, uh, that's going wrong is that for younger people in work, they were, uh, previously you would move on and move up. You'd both get training when you're in work and you'd move on to new jobs. Less on the job training and as the next slide slows, also less sort of contingent links to the labour market with, um, as it's called, the Saturday job. I think this is a really worrying slide, the decline in job-to-job -job move, so a more stuck labour market for younger people. And I put all this in because it helps to explain. This is the backdrop to, uh, and also, sorry, I should have mentioned that, routinisation. It's, this is, I'm going to dwell on this slide for a while, it's the backdrop to this slide which is the, the, earning, the real earnings trajectory of different cohorts. And the kind of picture you might have, um, these, were, uh, these were people born in 1964, born in 1968, and as they go into the labour market, each cohort earns a bit more than the previous cohort. And it's kind of what the social contract is that you might expect that for each generation they do a little bit better. Now, they are all hit, these flat lines later on, because they are all hit by the uh, uh, big by the crash and they're sensitive to recessions nothing's perfect but you've got these classic lines now look however as you move to the left look at the cohorts born in so that's the the blue one is cohort born in 1978 and there's the cohort born in 1983 or just a bit better here's the cohort born in 1988 as they make their way through the labor market they are currently on a significantly lower absolute real weekly earnings than previous cohorts that were at the same age. So there is, a, there is something going wrong with the, uh, the labour market there that is, means that it is not delivering for younger workers. And my previous slides offered some of the explanations why uh, that might be the case. Uh, and that, uh, this, I think, is, is a very worrying evidence. And when, it's interesting, when, you, uh, when David Cameron, when the, we in government do kind of attitude polling, or the Conservative Party does in private attitude polling, it doesn't do polling to sort of ask if there's an election tomorrow, 
uh, which part of you vote for. That you ignore. There's lots of published polling on that. There's new questions like asking people, what do you think is your, what are your biggest worries about the direction in which the country is heading? And top of the list in quite a few years since 2010 has been the generation coming after me, the younger people may not enjoy the same kind of opportunities in life as I have enjoyed. That is quite a deep-seated anxiety. And incidentally, that's why I'm not preaching generational war. I think people genuinely do care about prospects of the younger generation. And what's happened is we haven't been thinking about the generational angle as public policy has been developed, and you get these type of results. Now, uh, I, I apologise. This is, this is, a, this is a, a complicated slide, but this is... Oh, sorry, let's go back. This is another factor holding down the pay of uh, workers. If you, if you think of this as... This is the purple line. This is, telling, this is the gap between uh, pay and uh, productivity. This is, so this is telling you if productivity is growing by more than pay. And it's happened, and there's two factors that are pushing, that are holding down pay relative to productivity. The first one, in red, a bit of political symbolism there, and deliberately so, is that this is because median, it's what we call the wage distribution effect, if a large amount of the gains in returns to labour are taken by people in the top half or even the top 10% or whatever of the earnings scale, although returns to labour in total are good, it's not helping median pay. So one thing that's been happening is median pay has underperformed because a significant part of the of returns to labour, as productivity as it keeps on improving, has been taken by people who are earning above the median. Uh, and that is the kind of thing, this is what conventional politics talks about, and I completely understand that, and it's a legitimate debate about inequality and returns to labour and everything. This one is much less talked about, but is very interesting. This is pension contributions. Pension contributions by employers and employees are part of returns to labour, but don't show up as in pay. What was happening in the 1990s was companies were taking pension holidays. So that meant there was more of the returns to labour were being taken in the form of wages because less was being taken in the form of contributions to pension schemes. So it was having the effect of helping wages keep up with productivity. It was good for wages because you were getting more of your returns to labour in wages. But this has been unravelling. This is companies plugging pension deficits. This is more of the returns to labour taking the form of pension contributions, so that if you're an employer, it feels like you've still got quite a high cost of employing people, but it's not feeding through into median pay. These are contributions to pension schemes, which younger workers are not members of. So they are working, they're part of the returns to labour in the companies and organisations they're in, are to plug deficits in pension schemes that are closed to them. Uh, and I think it's a very significant form of uh, intergenerational unfairness. We'll come to it again when you get to the asset side. But this is showing it's, even a, it's, a, it's, it's having an effect on pay returns. It's one of the things that is now holding down pay relative to labour market returns. Um, and this is the kind of backing it up. This is um, uh, how... 
now how pension schemes are essentially for pensioners and older workers. Company pension schemes are rarely for younger workers. Uh, we don't have the same problem they have in Italy. In Italy, when you retire, you remain an active member of the trade union. The bulk, the majority of trade unionists in Italy are retired. Uh, so it becomes the trade union, the issue above all, is the state of the pension scheme rather than what is happening to wages. <coughs> so I think, I've, I think there I've shown you some labour market effects as well that are quite significant for younger workers and shown how they are seen to be getting a poorer deal from the labour market and tried to dig into why that would be. Um, put all these type of things I've already shown, put together the welfare state story and the labour market story and you get these type of effects. And I mean, it's good that we have more affluent pensions. As I say, I'm not against pensioners having decent standard of living. But it is a, uh, it, there's now a very significant opening up of a gap between uh, pensioners and uh, people of working age. Um, and so now, here's a, here's a very good example. Um, we've actually got an, uh, uh, an as you, people finding it quite, uh, finding it difficult, finding it very difficult to manage, you'll find that the financial pressures are now more likely to be concentrated on younger people and less likely to be found amongst pensioners. This is where the, this is where the uh, financial pressures are. Um, now, my attempt, this is, this is again, there'll be, there's lots of very sophisticated attempts to explain this. One fact, the reason why I'm not saying this is a kind of conspiracy, is that when I entered the labour force, I started paid work coming out of university in 1978, you could argue perhaps I was competing in some sense with French and German workers and American workers, and that was about it. A large part of the world was closed and not really participating in international trade and business. I can still remember, for me, being brought up in Birmingham, their big anxiety was Japan, which was the first kind of big competitive challenge we faced. Now you could argue that the feature of globalization is a lot of younger people entering the labor force are competing with Brazilians, Chinese, Indian workers, um, and uh, that has, uh, you know, globally, it may be good for equity, but it's probably one of the reasons why some of these labour market returns have been held down in advanced Western countries. Um, and this is, again, my health warning, of course. The, um, there are distributions, there are still some people who are, of, um, uh, there are pensioners in poverty, it's just that there are fewer pensioners in poverty than people of working age. So, I've taken you through the kind of income effect, a welfare state effect, a labour market effect, and some of that in, in income. I think in, uh, now what I do is turn to assets. Now, how are we doing for time, Nick? I don't know. The, uh, oh, yes, there we are, of course, the six. Right. So now, let's see if the same kind of data applies to different age cohorts when you look at building up the two main forms of wealth. Um, and basically, and these were, again, this is some data that is uh, harder uh, to dig, drill down into, but most, most wealth, personal wealth takes two main forms, houses and pensions. Uh, and uh, this, is, this is telling us that there is a concentration of wealth of people in the middle, in the baby boomer 
years, these type of issues. Now, of course, one of the analytical challenges is that is completely understandable. There is undoubtedly a genuine, legitimate life cycle effect here. People do uh, build up wealth and then run it down again. Uh, so this of itself is not evidence that of an inequity. This could just be the way societies function. What you trying, what one's trying to do, and it's it's complicated, but you're trying to disentangle three time types of effects. There's clearly some kind of usual life cycle effect, which should not shock us. There are then going to be period effects. If there's a recession or something, it hits everyone, regardless of their age. But then thirdly, there are cohort effects. You're trying to see whether there are some cohorts who may be doing less well than others when it comes to the accumulation of assets. And this, these kind of figures don't look as if they are just the usual life cycle effects. It looks as if there are some, uh, there are some time series, uh, there are effects for affecting generations over time. Now, these are only very small periods. They're very tight periods. But... There's a, there's a kind of picture already here where we've got this decline of household wealth, even in the period, we're only comparing uh, over a period of four to six years, you can see we seem to have a decline here and uh, an increase for them, the, uh, the uh, early boomers, bouncing around a bit there. So... It, le- it looks as if these, this massive group of 16 to 44-year-olds, because that's, remember, there I am covering uh, 30 years. These are other, only 10-year ranges. So there are many more people in here, but they've only got 16% of the wealth. So people, I mean, if we assume that under 16s have got very little wealth, we're saying that under 44s now have only 16% of the household wealth in the UK. Um, now, again, that is the classic... Uh, that's the classic distribution of wealth. And uh, I argue that if you look at what is happening, we're now going to turn closer up both to housing and pensions, it is hard to see how the younger generation are ever going to get to that kind of value of a pension, because the pension schemes have closed, the pension pot, or that kind of value of housing. They find it hard to get started on the housing ladder. So the two main routes to acquiring wealth are much uh, are much harder for them to uh, pursue. And here's the classic kind of housing market problem, uh, how, much they have to, how much they have to save. Uh, this is just how long it takes them to save for a deposit. Um, and again, it's now absolutely mainstream stuff, how are young people are going to get started on the, on the housing market. They are um, increasingly rented accommodation is what, where you find uh, younger people, private renting. Uh, they get started much later. And look at the, the a, a large proportion of 65 um, are owning outright without even a mortgage. So a very significant uh, distribution in pressures of housing conditions and overcrowding being particularly intense uh, in, uh, for people who are... Those are people with young families renting from local authorities. Now, how has this happened? Why have we ended up with the baby boomers doing so well in, um, when it comes to assets? Well, inflation. Again, they, uh, when I took out my uh, mortgage and bought my first little flat in London in the early 1980s, we then had, we had high interest rates, but we also had very high inflation. And that mortgage... The real burden of that mortgage debt of five or ten years had fallen significantly 
just because it was a it was denominated in money terms and its real value had fallen a lot. Now, in a time of low inflation, the real ver- burden of debt you take out to buy a house will stick with you for a lot longer. The other, eff- oh, sorry. Um, the other effect is well, I, I, about improvements in life expectancy. Imagine, well, not imagine, people kind of assume life expectancy not improving much. Imagine you work on a basis that life expectancy is fairly stable. And so you have lots of contracts providing rights to services and rights to flows of income that are denominated in terms of age. When you're aged over 65, you will receive X or X pounds per year. If you then have a significant unanticipated improvement in life expectancy, all those promises end up being worth a hell of a lot more than you thought they might be worth when you made the promise because it's a classic failure to index problem. You have not in, it's, not an, it's a non-index promise. Uh, and that's why it's good. But eventually, after a, a lot of debate, we've now finally got around to indexing pension age. I always think, just like with privatization, we had RPI minus X. We've now got for pension age RIP minus X, uh, which is how it should be done. We're trying to give people... A, the, and the, if you think of it, it's logical to say, well... Uh, I mean, in fact, we've got a... John Cridland is doing a review at the moment. You could say you get 15 years on average, you've got to do it for individuals, 15 years on average of, of uh, pension, uh, pre uh, your uh, average expected uh, mortality. Or you could even divvy up improvements in life expectancy and say we expect a third of them to accrue to people in pension age. But that's the kind of rational debate you need. And we've only really been having that in Britain for the past few years, long after a once-off benefit for a cohort who got all these promises for things aged over 65 and then got very great life expectancy. Um, Pension regulation is my third example. Uh, The original pension promise was a kind of with profits policy. It was a best efforts. It was not a fully enforceable property right. It didn't have protection against inflation in it. It didn't have rights for spouses. Uh, It didn't have particularly good rights for people moving jobs. So the initial pension promise was not a particularly generous pension promise. And over a period of 20 years, under parties of different political colours, There was, in response to uh, pressure and scandals like uh, Maxwell, there was a steady increase in pension regulation to change the nature of the pension promise to an absolutely legally enforceable, cast-iron, inflation-protected right to a pension that sticks with you even if you move jobs and is also quite generous for your spouse after you die. Now, that is fantastic for the people who were already who are in a pension scheme and where the company is every year or two has to add an extra feature under political pressure. The only trouble is their response, the response of companies to this has been to say, well, if that's what the pension promise is now like, I'm afraid we can't afford it for future generations. So that the pension scheme becomes a once-off special offer. You've voted yourself a set of regulations to make the pension promise so generous that no future uh, employees of the company are going to enjoy a pension, anything like that. So what was intended, and again, this is, it wasn't an act of malevolence, what was intended as improving company pensions has ended up making it a, a, a once-off, non-repeatable offer for a cohort. Happens to be the baby boomers who've got that kind of pension promise. Um, and... Uh, 
And even when it came to the bank bailout, the, the, uh, the creditors of banks, people holding um, uh, bank debt, for example, got basically 100% protection. And those were the type of assets that were held by life insurance companies that were going to pay uh, annuities. So we can see, just as there was a labor market story about globalization, you can see the kind of factors that would have led people to have these boomers to do well out of uh, their pension and housing assets because of a set of circumstances that would work to their advantage. Now, let me uh, conclude with this issue. And this is, the, this is the charge against me that I'm most sensitive to, that I'm kind of stoking up conflict between the generations. And uh, uh, let me be clear, and it goes back to that marvellous Samuelson quote earlier uh, and the functioning of the welfare state. A society, well, I, I think the core of the social contract is a contract between the generations. That's what, that's what holds society together. And indeed, and if there are political philosophers here, the, when Rawls puts us behind his veil of ignorance to agree this social contract that we're supposed to endorse, not knowing our gender or cultural identity or nationality, the one thing that he does have, which he writes in the early 70s, it already sounds out of date, but you can see why he did it. He calls the contracting parties heads of families. And my argument is that calling them heads of families does quite a lot of work for his theory, because you are turning up, you are constructing a contract where you're, he's actually saying it's not just you. you these are people who've got, may have um, elderly relatives, may have kids. He's, he's making his social contract. Uh, he, it's very important that it be intergenerational for his argument to function. So I'm saying that society is an intergenerational contract, and it's bad news if it's not being properly discharged. Why might this be happening? Well, one thing is increasing segregation between the generations. Um, we are less likely to... Uh, I mean, if you think about it, manufacturing is basically a job largely done by older people. Our median age in manufacturing is something over 50 now. Lots of service industries now done by uh, younger people. And a culture where kind of different generations are seen as potentially a threat each other. There's a wonderful charity um, that tries to match up uh, younger people who desperately need accommodation of some sort and older people, perhaps classically a little old lady living on her own with a spare bedroom or two who needs help with gardening or getting the shopping in or whatever. Um, and th this charity, uh, Home Share International, I think they're called, that fixes up these contracts. So there's a regulatory apparatus around these arrangements is very heavy because the assumption is that the older the pensioner is a vulnerable older person because they've got someone they now be sharing a house with someone who's not a blood relative and the younger person is a vulnerable person as well because they've got this you know, if they're under 21 they may be seen as at risk living with a, a older stranger whom they not do not have a family relationship the assumption is that these are kind of um, risky dangerous situations. And you even notice at schools, when I was a constituent example, you used to go around school, those, those ponty little fences to divide off the two-year-olds and the three-year-olds and the three-year-olds and the four-year-olds. Four, there's an assumption that you've got to be with your own age cohort to be safe. And I think that is, uh, that is uh, pernicious. And it particularly, it particularly shows up in younger people and uh, older generation 
who are the ones where their level of intergenerational contract, contact uh, is, the, that's where they are least likely to communicate with people from a different generation. And again, I saw as this as a constituency MP, I'd have a, I'd have a little old lady phone up and say, I'm in my block of flats, Mr. Willits, and there's a dangerous gang of young people who gather every night outside my flat, and I'm very afraid to go out. It was genuine that she was afraid to go out. Well, they weren't inventing it. I'm phoning the police, but they don't seem to be able to act, so what do I do? And then sometime later, you'd be cycling past, or you'd be driving off to an event. You'd say, hang on, that's where the lady came to see me, to complain. And, you know, and then you'd find there's a bus shelter. You'd check out. So what is this dangerous game? You'd find a group, a rather desultory group of 17-year-olds in a bus shelter. Perhaps the worst thing they might have would be a couple of cans of cider. And they would say, we're, we're bored, there's nothing for us to do. But why did the... They say, and there's some really angry lady in the block of flats who keeps on phoning the police. The police keep coming along and hassling us. Why on earth are the police hassling? We're not doing any trouble, we're just hanging out together. That is... That kind of mutual misunderstanding is tragic. And it's that kind of misunderstanding that's um, caught in this kind of thing. And this shows why it may be a bit worse in Britain than elsewhere. So this is... Um, this is the confidence of adults here in engaging with a very simple act. Would you, would you drive on or would you do something if you saw 14-year-olds? Very interesting. Lower, much lower levels of engagement in the UK faced with such an incident. Much less intergenerational confidence, if you like, uh, than in some continental countries. Now... Um, and so, uh, now, this is the bad news. I'll show you some good news in a moment. So when you're asked how should you pay, uh, how should you pay for state pensions, look, you get some rather different views from different age cohorts about how to pay for pensions. So this tells us that some of these attitudes are shaped by where you are in the, in the age distribution. Um, now, this is my, one of my most optimistic slides, and this is what I, where I am... Uh, this I take great heart. This is a doubling in the number of people since 2010 who think we need to build more houses. And one of the things that got me into this, again, going back to the, my constituency experience, is you'd go along on a Friday evening and talk to a local residents' association, a group of this kind of size. They'd almost all be people aged over 50. They'd be completely, they'd be decent socially active citizens. They'd all be serving as governors on the local school and all that. They were concerned citizens. They were not bad people. And they would almost always be gathering to protest about new housing development. And the local paper would regard stopping new housing development as a triumph for local, uh, admirable local campaigners and new houses being built as a defeat for local campaigners as these uh, horrible developers are get able to build houses. And I, as a politician who wanted to hold on to my seat, had to work out how to handle this all the time. Uh, and I, Because uh, then I'd come to the Residence Association on a Friday evening from a surgery where a young couple would come in, and he worked at Tesco's, and she was a nurse, and they got one kid, and they were still in the spare room of their his parents' house with a baby in a cardboard box at the bottom of the bed or something. It was ludicrous. What the pr and they were saying, we can't find anywhere around here that we can afford to live in. And I found that by far the best way of engaging with the people in the residence association was to say, first of all, well, I know the estate you're on. These were all houses that were built 
30 years ago, 40 years ago, on greenfield land for you guys. Surely whatever was done for you then that has enabled you to hold your house is what we should also do for the next generation. I'm not asking for any special favours, just the next generation to have the same kind of opportunities because you want your kids or grandchildren to have a house, don't you? And I found that the intergenerational appeal was by far the most persuasive way you could approach that tricky issue. Uh, and um, this, is a, this is a thought experiment which an American researcher has done. It's a, it's a brilliant idea. So imagine that uh, we are all the board of directors, owners uh, of an organisation, it can be for profit, not, it doesn't matter, which owns a patch of woodland. And the question is, someone comes along and wants to buy the woodland offers. Now, what do we think is... One argument... Is, so, should we, should we sell the woodland or not? One argument against selling the woodland is, look, the value of wood is going up. This is a valuable property, and it's going to be worth even more in the future. It's not rational to sell the woodland now, which is the kind of classic appeal to economic rationality that perhaps you might say my party is more associated with. The second type of argument is uh, people from the nearby town enjoy coming to this woodland, especially the poorer ones who don't have a garden of their own. It's a social amenity. We ought to continue to provide this social amenity for less affluent people. Has some purchase as well. But when she asked people to do the thought experiment, the third argument was the only reason why you have this woodland is because... It was left, you, you have, because previous generations have preserved it for you, you are holding it in trust for future generations. It's not, you don't actually have the power to sell this woodland. You're enjoying something that previous generations gave to you, and you've obliged to pass it on in at least as good a condition. And that third argument was far more persuasive than the other two. And my view is that one thing that has um, impoverished political debate is so many arguments, we're familiar with approaches to public policy, use the first two types of arguments, appeals to economic rationality and appeals to equity and social obligation, we haven't really, I think, been thinking enough in terms of that appeal to an intergenerational contract. Um, brilliantly put by one of my heroes, Edmund Burke, in this uh, description of what he said, uh, what he thought government was, a, a contract... Um, I, 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 not a partnership. It is a part. Here we are. Uh, as the end, cannot be obtained in a minute, it becomes a partnership not only between those who are living, between those who are living, those who are dead, and of those who are to be born. So I think that that's what government is. It's what holds a society together. I think people are susceptible to appeals to it. I think. For too long, we, were we weren't thinking through the implications of policy for different generations. And it is very important that we should. Thank you very much indeed.